Thanks for joining me this morning for sexual discipleship. Now, those are two words that we don't usually hear together, right? It's like, how do you get those together? Um, So we're going to talk about why those two words fit together and why they're important to put together. Um, Most of you know I'm Julie Slattery. Maybe you heard me speak last night and give a little context for what we're going to be talking about more specifically this morning. But before we, we dive in, let me just open us in prayer. Lord God, we come before you, and uh, we ask that you would just be in our space today, uh, here today, that you would give wisdom, that you would give insight, and Lord, we thank you that there's not one area of our lives that is hidden from you, uh, that's hidden from your love, that's hidden from your truth, that's hidden from your power, and Lord, I pray that you just be working all over this building today as people are seeking you and as we pursue truth together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I shared last night that I'm the mom of three teenage boys, uh, which makes my calling to talk about sexuality a little bit awkward. And uh, we've had a lot of conversations around the dinner table about what mom does and what her job is. And when I first started the ministry, Authentic Intimacy, about five years ago, uh, the boys were, the older boys were like in their early teen years, and my youngest son was about seven or eight years old. And uh, so the older teen boys, you know, again, about 13 or 14 years old, were like snickering about what mom talks about and teasing me. And my youngest son, Christian, again, at the time, he was like seven or eight. He was so curious. And he was saying to his brothers, well, what is it? Like, what does mom talk about? What's the big deal about her job? And so my middle son, Andrew, looked at Christian and just said, Christian, someday dad will take you on the talk. And you'll understand everything about what mom does. So Christian became very anxious about what this talk would be. Like, what's the talk, Andrew? Tell me. And Andrew said, you will learn to be a man. (laughs) So Christian is a, a deep soul, and he's thinking this through, and he's getting really worried about when this talk is coming. So we pulled Andrew aside, and we just said, Andrew, would you stop hazing your brother? I mean, just leave him alone. And so Andrew went to Christian and said, Christian, I'm going to tell you what the talk's about. The talk is about raking leaves. I don't know how he came up with that. So Christian kept thinking that Mike, my husband, would take him away and teach him how to rake leaves, and that would make him a man, and that would help him understand what I do. So poor kid is very confused. He'll be in therapy someday, I'm sure of it. But eventually, uh, Christian did go away for the talk about a year or two ago. My husband took him away for the weekend, took him through the Passport to Purity Family Life Resource. And I don't know any of you parents who have done this with your kids, taking your kids away uh, to talk to them about sexuality. But when you're the opposite gender parent, when that kid walks through the door and they look at you, it's like, they look at you different, like, you do that? (laughs) Really? And Christian said, Mom, now I know what you do. And I was like, okay. And he said, and Dad told me that, you know, he just gave me like the basic, but you talk about all of it. And I said, yeah, that's what I do, Christian. That's what God's called me to. And he said, Mom, I have to tell you, I just feel a little weird knowing all this. It's just, I feel too young. And I said, Christian, I know it feels awkward, and I know you're young, but we want to teach you about sexuality before the world has a chance to teach you about sexuality. We want, to, we want you to hear it from us first. And the world is talking about sex all the time. Your friends are going to be talking about it. You hear about it in the media. 
And so he goes, I get that. I understand that. So Christian went away to play Legos or something. And then he came back about an hour later and I was cooking in the kitchen. And he said, Mom, you know, I've been thinking the way the world is going, I'm going to have to have this talk with my kids when they're like four. (laughs) Isn't that true? Though I mean the way the world is going, and uh, we know that we lived in a we live in a sexually chaotic world. We talked about that a little bit yesterday, and I really believe that we're honestly just at the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to be seeing in our culture uh, related to sexual brokenness and confusion, as we've made decisions in our country and in and really the Western world that everybody gets to create their own sexual ethic. There's going to be great great confusion and brokenness. We're just seeing the beginning of it. Uh, I anticipate that we're going to see the rates of sexual abuse uh, double or triple what they are today uh, because of the impact of pornography, uh, the desensitization, you know what I mean, that word, of, uh, of just sexuality and the attitude that is a consumer product that I'm allowed to take if I want, uh, and really the spiritual battle of the fact that we've really given God this landscape, we've given the enemy this landscape in our heart. And when we give the enemy a piece of our heart, a piece of our morality, a piece of our country, a piece of our culture, he will wreak havoc with it. And so uh, I believe that God has called me to this ministry because we have to have a response to the sexual brokenness that not only, again, is in our culture, but is in our churches and is on the mission field. Everywhere we go, we're encountering sexual brokenness. Uh, And there's really two reasons why we have to have a response. And the two reasons go right back to the Great Commission. Uh, The two reasons involve evangelism of the good news of Jesus and discipleship. And the evangelism piece of this is that I believe that sexual brokenness is perhaps the greatest opportunity we have to share the love of Jesus with the world. Because as people go out and they exercise their sexuality the way they think they have the right to, we know from just the way God has created the world that they're going to experience consequences that are painful in their lives. And the people around them are going to experience painful consequences. And some of you can relate to this. Uh, You know what it's like to have struggled with a a sexual addiction. You know what it's like to grow up in a family where a parent was unfaithful in their marriage or that marriage broke up. You know what it's like uh, to have experienced abuse in your past. And when the world experiences that kind of brokenness and hurt, if we're willing to step into those conversations we will find that they're more open to truth and hearing about the love of somebody who can take away that brokenness and shame than any other conversation can provide. And we see this happen even in the Gospels. We see that Jesus got particularly to women's hearts. We don't have many uh, incidents of him talking about sexuality with men, uh, but many women, he, he ministered to them and offered them living water through the avenue of talking about their sexual brokenness or addressing their sexual sin. John Piper said that the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. And I think that's very true as we have people that are just confused and broken and want help. Wherever help will come from, we have the opportunity to say, you know, not only can I give you some some things to get through life, I can introduce you to a God who knows everything you've been through and who's able to forgive all your sin and is able to redeem everything you've experienced in your life. 
The second reason we have to have a response is to build the church in maturity in Christ. And I want to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 4 um, that, that talks about why God... My, my Bible app just closed. There we go. That talks about why God gave the spiritual gifts to the body. And I'm going to start with Ephesians 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity and faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth of love, we will grow to become in every respect in the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And when I think about that passage and I think about the context of sexuality, we have a church that is not rooted in the truth of what God says about sex. And like this passage says, if you're not rooted, if you're not equipped, if you're not mature, you're going to be blown by every wind of culture. And that's exactly what we see, what we see happening within the body of Christ related to sexuality. Uh, Barna Group just recently has done some research on this and has found that your beliefs about sexuality have more to do with the generation you're raised in than they have to do with your profession of faith. So we've got lots of generations represented here, and I would guess that those in the millennial generation, you have much more confusion about issues like cohabitation and gay marriage and transgender issues because your generation is focusing on uh, everybody needs to be included and love and things like that, whereas the older generation, the focus was on God's truth, it's unchanging, Uh, There wasn't a lot of focus on mercy and how do we live that out. And so as we address sexual issues, we're much more influenced by our culture than we are the word of God. And we really need both truths. We need the truths of what uh, the boomers and the older generation has in terms of honoring God's word and dissecting God's word and reading it and understanding it. And we need the influence of the younger generation that would say, yeah, but what about God's love and mercy and how do we reach people that are broken? But the issue is, we as a body need to use the gifts that God has given us to become mature in this area of sexuality. And can I just say, as a whole, the Christian church is very immature in issues of sexuality. We don't know how to have conversations. Uh, When we talk about sex, we, we just say, well, save sex for marriage. And then once you get married, have a lot of it and enjoy it. And we leave, the, we leave it at, the, at that. We don't say anything else, really. And really, there's a couple consequences for not having a really practical, in-depth theology of sexuality. Uh, one of those consequences is that we don't communicate the spiritual significance of sexuality. And I talked about that a little bit last night. Uh, but it's not enough to say to each other, uh, you should be sexually pure. It's like, well, Why? You know, why would God care about what I do with my body sexually when he doesn't care what I eat? What's the difference? And we have to be teaching why sexuality is a spiritual construct. Uh, One of the things that we teach at Authentic Intimacy is every sexual choice is also a spiritual choice. And we break that down into why sexuality is so significant uh, to God and why he cares about it so much. 
A second consequence is we don't equip Christians to live in the real world. Christians are not equipped to answer difficult questions about sexuality. Just a couple emails that I got within the last week or so. One of them said, Julie, I was at your conference in Fort Lauderdale a few weeks back. I was too scared to ask a question. However, however, I was wondering what happens when both my husband and me are survivors of extreme sexual abuse for many years. I've been fasting, asking God for a healthy sex life. I've been working on rapes the last few years, and I find you extremely helpful as wondering what we could do to make this better. Now, how many pastors or even counselors are equipped from a biblical perspective to answer a question like that? Or how about this, this email I got? Cursed be the day I was created. I hate the fact that I'm still struggling with porn. I hate it with a passion. No longer do tears run down my cheeks because of repentance, but rather hate. Julie, I hate this. I prayed so much about this. I've had counseling for two semesters. I installed covenant eyes. I need a miracle. I'm losing my faith over this stupid struggle I face. Face, Julie, please pray for me because I've run out of prayers. And that's a, a young woman who's studying at a Bible college right now. Are her RAs equipped to handle that kind of pain and question? Is her pastor equipped? And I could go on and on with the kind of questions that we get and the emails that force us to go so much beyond just a simplistic view of save sex for marriage. We have to be equipped to answer questions like this. A third reason that we have to be engaged in this conversation is because our current strategy of dealing with sexuality or not dealing with it has created what we call silos related to sexuality. And what I mean by this is when we think about sexual issues, we tend to put people in categories. Uh, So we've got people that struggle with sexual addiction or pornography. Uh, We've got people with broken marriages and sexual dysfunction within marriage. Uh, We have singles who are very frustrated with their sexuality and don't know what to do with it. We have abuse victims who have trauma. We have people struggling with LGBT-type issues. Uh, We have issues like uh, sex trafficking around the world. And we have ministries that are narrowly focused on one of those issues. And what God has called us to do at our particular ministry is combine all of those issues and say, you know, we're really all fighting the same battle. Every single one of us in this room are fighting the battle at some level of God has given us this great gift of sexuality. We have an enemy that is trying to destroy it, and that plays out differently in each of our lives. And we need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome it. Instead of having all these separate conversations that create shame, like I'm the one dealing with porn, or I'm the one with same-sex attraction, and we have all these separate conversations, you know, my desire is to open up the conversation and say, hey, we're all in the same battle together. And my sin struggle is no more shameful than yours. My brokenness is no more shameful than yours. We all just need the redemptive power of God to restore this in our lives. So uh, that is why I put together these two words, sexual discipleship, because the goal is to have a comprehensive understanding of a biblical theology of sexuality. That's kind of a mouthful, Um, but we're going to break that down a little bit this morning. But in order to understand what sexual discipleship is, I want to contrast discipleship with education. Because at best... The church has been doing some sex education from a biblical perspective. 
I've never really seen a situation where a church has begun to do discipleship. So, difference between education and discipleship. Is anyone in this room fluent in Spanish? All right. You right there. Could you come up just for a minute? I'm going to pick on you here. I promise we're not going to talk about sex. (laughs) And your name is? Raul. Raul, where are you from? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. So you're really fluent in Spanish. All right. So, yeah. So is that your first language? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So I took like four years of high school Spanish and three years of college Spanish. And um, I I took a lot of Spanish, but I was educated in it. But... I would like to try to have a, a conversation with you in Spanish. Okay, so you go ahead and start. Donde vives? Donde vives? Where do you live? Where do I live? Um, me live in Colorado. <laughs> in Colorado. Por cuánto tiempo? That you said time, right? Yeah. What time is it? No. For how long? For, For how long. many? Yeah. Uh, ocho años? Ocho años. Eight years. Yeah. There you go. ¿Dónde naciste? Where were you born? Where was I born? <laughs> Akron, Ohio. That's kind of Spanish. Very good. <laughs> yeah. You too? Uh, I was born in... No, no, no. Espanol. Ah. Yo nací en San Juan, Puerto Rico. Hmm. Hmm. Good. Good. Oh. ¿Dónde estudiaste? Um. Yo no sé. Where did you study? Um. Wheaton College. I'm sorry, I'm not doing them very proud today. <laughs> yeah. ¿Dónde está eso localizado? Where, uh, where is that? Uh, Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Tengo hambre. You're hungry. No. Uh, no. Okay. Tienes hambre? No, hambre? Yeah. I'm good. Tienes sed? Tampoco. Estoy bien. Yeah. ¿Dónde está el baño? <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks, Raúl. I appreciate it. <laughs> Muchas gracias. All right. So that right there is... Uh, a very uh, vivid description of the difference between education and discipleship. Because I was educated in Spanish uh, and I took lots of classes in it, if Raul speaks very slowly and asks me the right question, I might be able to have somewhat of an answer. Uh, but when he's just speaking fluently, I have no, I have no hope there, right? And that's really what we're like in the world related to sexual issues. If somebody happens to ask you the right question in the right way, you might have an appropriate biblical response. But the world is discipled in sexuality according to the world standards. And I would even say that most of us who are followers of Christ have been discipled by the world in our sexuality. It's much easier to think about sexual issues from an understanding of what the world has taught us than it is to think about sexual issues from an understanding of what the Word of God says. And so discipleship is this idea of from cradle to the grave teaching and showing what God's design for sexuality is. And when we're aware of it and when we're honest with it, we can see that the world is doing a very, very effective job of teaching us from cradle to grave what sexuality should look like. 
and they have an agenda, they know what they believe, and they're consistent in saying what they believe. They show us what it looks like to live according to their model of sexuality. And no one's confused about what the world believes. We're only confused about what we're supposed to believe as followers of Christ. So I want to break uh, sexual discipleship down into three elements uh, that are critical in terms of how we actually put this into practice. And there's a passage in scripture that we frequently go to when we think about the concept of discipleship. And that passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think there's even a ministry called D6 that talks about discipleship out of this passage. Um, But let me just go ahead and pull that up and we can look at that together and talk through what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and how we can make this really practical. All right. So um, so let's remember that Deuteronomy chapter 6, the context of this is that Moses has just kind of done a preview of the law and he's getting ready to send the nation of Israelite into the promised land. And Moses knows that he's not going with them. These are people that for 40 years he has led, uh, he has cried with them, he has buried their mothers and fathers, uh, he has interceded for them. And he is giving them the commands of God. And he has a sense of fear knowing that these people are probably not going to be faithful to the commands of God. So when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have to remember the context that Moses probably said these, these words. These may have been even his last words to the nation of Israel. He said them with great passion. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And when we read that passage, that charge that he gives the nation of Israel in terms of saying, when you go into this new land, I want you to be faithful to the Lord, we can break down his instruction into three practical things that we can do in terms of what discipleship looks like in an area like sexuality. So the three things we're going to talk about specifically coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, number one is knowing what we believe. Number two is repeating what we believe in daily life. And number three is modeling what we believe. So we're going to talk about each of those for a little bit. uh, And then if we have some time, uh, we'll do some Q&A as well. Okay, so the first thing is knowing what we believe. What do we believe about sexuality? What do you think Christians believe in general about sexuality? Just go ahead and yell some things out. What have you heard from churches, from Christian training Sex is bad till you get married. Yep, we know that one. Okay. You're a recovering Baptist? Well, good for you. You're in the right place. Okay. What else? You're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, I know. I hear that often. (laughs) Okay. What else? What did you say? I'm sorry. Don't talk about, don't teach sex ed and then people won't get in trouble. Let's just pretend that people aren't sexual and maybe they'll forget that they are, right? Yeah, that's worked really well. Dress well but not too attractively. And underlying that message is that uh, if a woman is immodest, 
she essentially is leading other people into sexual sin, and there's a lot of fear and shame related to that. So, yeah, that's a message. Oh, once you get married, sex is perfect. And men tend to teach that, don't they? <laughs> we don't hear many women saying that. It's like, yeah, it's definitely a journey for women. A separation between sexuality and Christianity. And again, no one says that overtly, but that's modeled for us everywhere. That you go to church and you talk about your spiritual life, you don't talk about your sexual life because God doesn't deal with that area of your life. Um, So most of us who grew up in a Christian setting, that's essentially what, by the silence, we learned. Is that there's the spiritual me and the sexual me, and I really don't know how the two would ever intersect. Anything else? Sex education causes promiscuity. Uh, yeah, and there are, there are people that are very cautious or, or against, for example, wanting me to speak to their congregation because somehow, I don't know if they believe if we talk about it, then all of a sudden things will go awry. Um, so I think that's really something that's kept us quiet on the issue of sexuality. Anything else? Say that again. Bipolar responses to LGBT. You're right. I mean, there's there's two extremes in our responses, uh, and and both of them lack something. Um, so that's a that's very true. One more, maybe. I saw somebody over here raise their hand. Yes, purity is defined by if you're a virgin, and once you've given that up, none of it matters anymore, pretty much. Um, that is the message that we've been taught. Um, so if from the outside view, let's say that you didn't know much about the Christian faith uh, and you heard these kind of messages, what would you think about God's opinion about sexuality? It's bad. It's confusing. It doesn't mesh with my reality. It's kind of weird. It's what that... It's shameful. And you would say, wow, the world is doing a much better job of helping me with this part of my life than the church is. Uh, I'd much rather go to search a mom blog to get information than ask somebody in my church body because I'll feel ashamed if I do that. And so we really want to change that and dig into deeper what the scripture actually says about sexuality. So we could spend hours and hours going through this, but I want to just... talk about a few major points that have been the theology, theological points that have shaped the ministry of authentic intimacy. Number one, we believe that human sexuality was intentionally created as a powerful experience of intimacy that reflects the unfolding drama of intimacy with God. Now that's, a, again, a mouthful that I want to unpack for a minute, and we talked about this a little bit last night, that sexuality as a spiritual construct was created to be a powerful metaphor for the covenant love of God for his people. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, uh, all through chapter 5, Paul is talking about marriage. He's talking about the roles in marriage, the purpose of marriage. And then in verse 31, he quotes Moses from the Old Testament. And he says, For this reason a man shall leave his mother or father and shall cleave, become one with his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And right there, the words that Paul is using is actually talking about physically becoming one flesh, sexually becoming one flesh. Uh, And then Paul seems to have an ADD moment. And he says, 
But this is a mystery. I'm really talking about Christ and the church. And then Paul goes back to talking about marriage. And we skipped right past that. We just think, I don't know what he's saying about there. I mean, he's talking about marriage. He's talking about sex. How is this a mystery? And what Paul is really saying is that you cannot understand marriage and sexuality properly until you really understand that the primary purpose, again, why we are sexual, is to give us a physical metaphor for God's covenant love for his church. And we talked about last night how even the prophets would use very sexual language to describe infidelity to help us understand God's heart about spiritual infidelity. Uh, And another way that this is shown in the scriptures is the Old Testament word for sex, for intimacy between a husband and wife, is the word yadah. And we see the word yadah um, first mentioned in in Genesis where it says, uh, Adam yadah Eve and gave birth to Cain. When we look at the word yadah, it literally means to know, to know intimately. And that's why we have a joke sometimes where we go like, yeah, he knew her in the biblical way. It's referring to the word yadah. Because every time in scripture in the Old Testament, when a husband and wife are in covenant relationship and they're sexually intimate, the word yadah is used. Now, interestingly, when there's violent sex in the Old Testament, like, for example, when uh, Tamar was raped by her half-brother, the word yadah isn't used. The word shakab is used. Or if there's prostitution, it's the word shakab. The word yadah is used in the Old Testament over 940 times. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there's not that much sexual intimacy in the Old Testament. So why is this word used over 940 times? Because it's most often used to describe God's intimate knowledge of his people and our intimate knowledge of him. So, for example, Psalm 139, a psalm that David wrote of intimate knowing. The word yadah is used in that psalm over and over again. Oh God, you have searched me and you yadah me. You know, you yadah when I rise, when I sit. You yadah my thoughts before they even, before I even speak them. Your works are wonderful. I yadah that full well. Over and over and over again, David is using a word that is also used for sexual intimacy in terms of his longing to know God and God's deep knowledge and longing and intimacy in knowing him. And we read the Old Testament in English and we're like, wow, I totally missed that. But think for a minute, why would God inspire the writers of the Old Testament to use the same word to describe sexual intimacy between the covenant relationship of a husband and wife as he used to describe his deep knowing of his people? Because God is trying to tell us something through the way that he inspired scripture. That our sexual knowing, our sexual longings have a connection that can never be separated from a longing to know who God is. A celebration when we're united with him by his Holy Spirit. Uh, Even as a single person, the longing to have something that you don't have, that's reflected in Scripture. The bridegroom is gone, and we mourn, and we fast, and we wait for him. And you who are single, you know what that feels like, to long for something that's in the future, and you're waiting for it, and you're fasting, and and it hurts to wait. All of that is supposed to teach us about, again, this unfolding drama of our intimacy with God. Now, when you understand that, 
whether you're single or married, it puts a whole different perspective on your sexuality and a whole different perspective of why sexual brokenness uh, is such an entangling experience because it interferes with our understanding of this beautiful metaphor that God has created. That relates to the second thing we believe. We believe that Satan works to tarnish and destroy God's beautiful design for intimacy. That Satan knows how powerful the metaphor of sexuality is. And I would argue that God's metaphor of sexuality and marriage and covenant is perhaps the greatest metaphor we have on earth to understand the gospel. To understand God's passionate love for us and how devastating it is when covenant is broken and how desperate we are. When, we, when we're not united with one that we're created to be united with. That actually the gospel in our sexuality in some ways is even written on our bodies. It's a reminder every day that you are made for covenant love. Satan knows this. And so he works overtime to tarnish it in whatever way he can. Now I want you to think for a minute. Can you think of an area in our world that is under more attack than sexuality? All the different ways it's under attack. And again, I believe that 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 impacts each one of us, maybe in different ways, but each one of us could tell a story of how Satan has tarnished this. For some, it might be abuse in the past. For some, it might be growing up in that really conservative church or home that taught you that your sexuality is shameful, that God is nothing to speak into it. And then you get married and you can't enjoy sexuality. You don't know what it is to be a spiritual and sexual person at the same time. So we could go into many different examples of how sexuality is broken, but let's understand that sexual brokenness is the result of a spiritual battle. It's not primarily a psychological issue. It's primarily the result of a spiritual battle and an enemy who wants to tarnish what God has created as good. We believe that Jesus came to redeem us from sin, captivity, and brokenness. Uh, in Psalm 103, uh, David, I think it's David who wrote this, but he says, uh, you know, let my soul praise the Lord. And he talks about the goodness of God. And he says, who forgives all my sins. He says, who heals all my diseases and who redeems my life from the pit. When I think of those three words, forgives my sins, heals my diseases and redeems my life from the pit. Those are, that's what God came to do and how much those intersect with who we are as sexually broken people. We believe that we pursue healing through three different avenues that are connected. Uh, and the first one is applying the wisdom of creation. Uh, my, my doctorate is in clinical psychology. And... Uh, from the very beginning of studying psychology, I was faced with a question of how do I reconcile what I learned in the psychological field with my faith in Jesus Christ? And I'm guessing that in this room there are probably people on all different journeys and how you answer that question. Uh, but one of the things that really, really helped me was understanding that like every science, psychology was ultimately and primarily created by God. Even though it's not called psychology in the scripture, I believe the book of Proverbs is a book of psychology. Because essentially what Solomon is doing is in the book of Proverbs is he is observing the laws with which God has created humanity. 
He's watching, he's observing, and he's drawing out principles and then applying them to healthy living. Um, so Solomon will say, you know, things like this, like wounds of a friend, uh, the kisses of a friend are great, wounds of it. What, how's that one go? You know what I mean. The wounds of a, or the kisses of a, there you go. Come on, someone say it. Yeah, essentially, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. How many of you experienced that in real life? You've had a friend wound you that hurt, and it ended up being a blessing. And then you've had someone flatter you behind your back, and although it's or to your face, and even though it sounded great, behind their, your back they were saying mean things about you. That's a truth, right? Spare the rod, spoil the child. That's in Proverbs. It's like, how many of you have experienced that? Or you look around in culture, or you look at your grandchildren, and you're like, oh man, they're so spoiled, they need discipline. Um, so Solomon, we could go on and on, he talks about wives, he had a lot of them, and he's talking about a nagging wife is worse than living in a house with a leaky roof. Solomon experienced that. So as he's looking at creation with the wisdom of God, he's drawing out principles and applying them. And the book of Proverbs is not all-encompassing of everything we can observe in life. It's an example, and I really believe it's a call to us, each one of us, to study the principles that God created us with, to, to extract those principles and apply them to wise living. And I really believe that's what a biblical psychologist is called to do. Now let's remember what Solomon said is the very beginning of wisdom. What did he say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. If we study anything, including psychology, without the fear of the Lord, without recognizing God as the creator, the author of right and wrong and morality, we will, come, we will observe the earth and come out with bad conclusions. And that's what we see in fields like psychology, and we could say in fields like business or even medicine, when somebody will look at creation and, and the, the majesty and the creativity in the human body, how the ear works, how the eye works, and they come away with that and they say, yeah, this just all kind of evolved by random chance. It's like, how could you draw that conclusion? You who study the human body, you just believe it just happened. And that's because they don't apply the fear of the Lord to what they're studying. Now, why do I say all that? I say all that because a piece of healing is studying creation and applying it. And there are Christians who would say, uh, you know, all you need to do is pray to get over your sexual abuse. God will take that away. Or all you need to do is memorize scripture to get over an addiction to pornography. But we know from science, by studying science, that there's certain things that happen to the brain when someone experiences trauma as a child. There's certain things that happen in the brain when someone's exposed to very explicit sexual material over and over and over again. And God would say, hey, you have this information. You can study how I, I created your sexuality, how your brain responds to it, and use that in terms of helping people heal. And we have the freedom and I believe the mandate to study all that God has created, take advantage of every scientific discovery, as long as we remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second piece that helps us heal is engaging in restorative relationships. And research will show that one of the most powerful things about going to counseling or therapeutic relationship is not necessarily the advice that the counselor gives you, but it's the relationship. 
It's the fact that you have a safe place to go uh, to talk about things and to feel accepted and not judged. Um, to have somebody who consistently will be there for you week after week that you can count on. And our sexual brokenness almost always happens in the context of relationship. And God uses healing almost always in the context of relationship. And for many people, the very first step of healing is saying to another person, I'm struggling with this, or I'm hurting in this area, or this happened to me. And when that person is, that confession is met by somebody who extends the love of Jesus, who doesn't judge, who doesn't question, who just says, I'm so sorry, and I want you to know I'm going to be here for you, whatever that looks like. Someone who's willing to walk through the mess of what healing looks like, that is one of the most powerful elements of healing that we can give somebody. You may not be trained in psychology, but if God calls you to walk alongside people that are broken and you can just be that consistent person for them, realize that that's a huge part of their healing and that that's a big part of helping them move into trust, uh, move into feeling the love of Jesus. And that's the third part of healing is pursuing intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ. When I look at um, psychology, when I look at counselors, We're trained in the field of psychology really to do those first two things. We apply the wisdom of creation, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. We provide a therapeutic, uh, restorative type relationship of being loving and consistent with somebody. But here's where we fall short in, in fields like psychology. We never realize that the whole purpose of those first two things is to help somebody restore a relationship with Jesus Christ and to meet him personally as the healer. I think of John the Baptist, who for a couple years uh, was working with his own disciples and was training his own disciples. And then one day he was with his disciples and he said, Look, behold, here's the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist said, Hey, I'm just the best man. The best man doesn't compete with the bridegroom. And so in our relationships of helping people restore uh, uh, to just wholeness and to healing, we have to remember that the primary purpose of showing the love of Jesus is eventually to bring them to Jesus, to bring them to the healer, to expose the lies of the enemies through psychology, but then bring them to truth. And this is where modern psychology falls short because they don't believe there is a healer. They expose all this junk in a person's life. Now where do you send them? They have nowhere to send them. But we're called to bring them to the feet of Jesus, whatever that looks like, in whatever context God has us uh, working in. So these are the core elements of what we believe about sexuality. Again, we could spend a lot more time digging into this. But if you look at these uh, four points, you can see it's much more holistic and, and tied in with the gospel and who Jesus is than simply saying, save sex for marriage. And then once you get married, try to have fun. All right, so let's move to that second thing. Applying what we believe, discipleship is not an event, but it's a journey. It requires the deliberate and intentional repetition of our beliefs in the normal course of life. And we see that Moses wrote this to the Israelites. You know, he said to them, when you walk along the road, when you get up, when you lie down, talk about it all the time. Now, does that mean that every day we should have conversations with our kids or with people we're teaching about sex? What do you think? Huh? Yeah? Yeah? I have a 15-year-old son, and I don't just direct him. 
Yeah. He's living this world because when I grew up it was totally different. Yes. But I have to be able to 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 get in his mind so that I can redirect yeah. him back to Christ. So it it doesn't it doesn't mean waking up every day and saying, Okay, we're gonna have a lesson on sex today. Um, in other words, what what Moses is saying is as you go throughout life, look for teachable moments, look for opportunities to always be integrating this into daily life and into conversation. Um, and you said that you have a 15-year-old boy. My boys are 19, 17, and 13. Um, so we've got hormones flying all over the place. But some of it is, as a mom, what is the challenge? How do I integrate conversations about healthy sexuality? How do I integrate conversations about pornography or what you're doing with your phone or dating relationships uh, or sexting and all the things that my kids are confronted with? Uh, how do I integrate conversations about what's happening in culture, about gay marriage, about TV characters like Jazz, who's a transgender person? Uh, you know, What do you call a transgender person by their biological gender? or the preferred gender. These are all conversations and things that our kids are struggling with that not only our kids are struggling with but our spiritual children within churches and on the mission field are struggling with. How do we begin engaging those in conversation? Uh, And some of it means applying God's design for sexuality and restoration to all relevant circumstances and stages of life. And if you're looking for this, you will see opportunities almost on a daily basis to have conversation around the topic of sexuality. The news itself gives us lots of examples of this. And again, let me tell you that the world is doing an excellent job at this. Here's just one example. Uh, A friend of mine who has preschoolers sent me a text one day and says, I can't believe it. I was folding the laundry and my kids are watching Sesame Street. And Bert is talking, reading a book called The Fifty Shades of Oatmeal. This is Sesame Street. Yeah, the world is doing an awesome job of capturing toddlers and preschoolers and school-age children and tweens and teenagers and young adults and older adults in in their theology of sexuality. And so for our kids to be discipled, and again, I'm not just talking about biological children, I'm talking about the church for us to be discipled means that we need to be just as strategic and intentional about addressing these topics as they come up. Um, so here, let me ask you a quick question. Think about the past year. I would love for you to come up with five things, maybe even get in a small group for just a few minutes and come up with three to five things that have happened in culture that could have prompted teaching on sexuality within your church. So just take a few minutes to do that. Okay, did you come up with a few things? Yeah? Did this, did this whole election cycle even provide lots of fodder for sexuality? Some of you talk about that. Um, a lot of the tension was around sexual issues and uh, how we handle sexuality, like abortion, LGBT stuff. Even uh, Donald Trump's uh, history of uh, exploiting women with his words and with his actions. We've got to deal with that. Um, So those are all even just within the last few weeks that have come up that should be talked about from the pulpit, should be talked about at the dinner table, 
should be talked about in our women's and men's Bible study because they're certainly talked about everywhere else. Uh, And God gives us those opportunities. We also see that even if you teach through the Bible faithfully, you will encounter tons of opportunities to talk about sexuality from God's perspective. Um, Because sexuality, even though it's not talked about in the church, is talked about in a great detail and in many places in the Word of God. So that third aspect of what discipleship looks like is modeling what we believe. So it's not enough, for example, to say, um, hey, singles, God tells you to save sex for marriage and, you know, just hang in there, hold on. It's like, thanks for that. That's helpful. Uh, what a single who's hearing that message really needs is another single who's like, I'm a few, I'm a few years down the road from you. Here's what I've struggled with. Here's how God has met me in intimacy in my heart. Uh, Here's some of the challenges I have. And this is how I've pursued the Lord in the midst of this. Uh, Somebody who's struggling with pornography, like the woman's email that I read, she not only needs me to say, hey, hang in there, God is faithful. She needs to be connected with another woman who could say, I was in the exact same place you were in two years ago. And this is how God met me. And I want, you to, I want you to know he sees your efforts. He sees your struggle. He is good. And I will call you once a week and check in with you and we can pray together. We need models. And I just met a young woman here today, Gabrielle, and she gave me her book. And it's her story of coming out of homosexuality. We need women and men like Gabrielle who will say, let's not just say, hey, God says homosexuality is wrong. This is a very difficult topic and painful topic. And those struggling with same-sex attraction don't just need a sermon on what the Bible says about it. They need that. But they also need a model to say, God brought me out of this. And this is what my life looks like today. And here's some of the things I felt when I was in the midst of this. Uh, We need those kind of models. We need models of marriages that have experienced infidelity. And God has brought healing and he's brought restoration. Not just a sermon, but we need people. And uh, I would guess even within this room, we have models on all these different issues. You have testimonies of how God has met you and how he's brought healing from abuse. How he's he's mended your heart from uh, a betrayal. You know, how he's been faithful to you in difficult times. And let me just tell you that the world and the body of Christ needs to hear your story. And you need to be saying to the Lord, don't just send me with a message. Use my story. Because when you look at the New Testament, God commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel, but he also commissioned many people on his time on earth. Jesus said, go tell them what I've done for you. Go tell them. And revival started when people began to tell the story of meeting Jesus. We need those models within our church to be vocal and to be honest about the tension that they experienced in pursuing God uh, in the midst of sexual struggles and brokenness. Sexual struggles and brokenness. Um, So this is just something to think about. Out of this list, which one of these do you believe God has equipped you to model for the church uh, what this looks like? Sexual fulfillment in marriage. We need models for that. Of uh, you know, Every church and every body of Christ should have couples where they're like, I want to be like that when I'm 60. I mean, they are still in love. How in the world are they doing that? 
You know, I, there's still a spark between them. Uh, we need models of repentance and redemption, realistic consequences of sexual sin. We need people brave enough to say, you know, I have an STD because of choices I made in my 20s. And God is redeeming my life, but I still carry some consequences for the choices I made. Uh, authentic struggles with temptation, the long journey of healing, because healing often is a very, very long journey, and the tension of grace and truth. Uh, I wish that we had time to do Q&A today, but we have run out of time, unfortunately. And uh, I'm going to invite Hannah to come up. She works with the Ministry of Authentic Intimacy, and she can give you some thoughts on how to plug in and how to ask questions. Is this on? Oh, it is on. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, Yeah, my name's Hannah. I get to work with Julie at the Ministry of Authentic Intimacy. So most of you should have gotten one of these when you came in. If you didn't, there are resources on the back. You could grab one for yourself or a stack for um, groups or churches that you're working with. So we're just really thankful you guys came here. When I looked at that like poster of all the different options for you all to prioritize and say sexuality is something that I want to be able to discuss, uh, thank you for doing that and taking step one. The reason we exist, the reason authentic intimacy exists, is to help reclaim God's design for sexuality and learn how to sexual dis- be sexual disciples and sexually disciple those around us. So you are invited to join our little community and be involved in that. Uh, Julie has a weekly blog, a weekly podcast, conferences. You can find all of that on our website. And then I brought a few of her resources that are in the back there. Uh, we have a booth over by the refugee exhibit, so if you go visit that, you can find us there. Some of those resources you guys were asking about as you were coming in, um, I brought just four of Julie's different books, uh, just some of our favorites that we felt like would be a good fit. This one is called Sex and the Single Girl. It's a six-week Bible study for single girls on sexuality, again, going much beyond that conversation of just purity. Uh, Pulling Back the Shades, Will mentioned this from stage last night. Julie wrote this in response to Fifty Shades of Grey, but really addressing erotica and pornography and how what does it look like to be sexual and spiritual. Uh, 25 questions you're afraid to ask about love, sex, and intimacy. If we had time for a live Q&A today, I can guarantee you these are the questions you guys would have been asking, and it just has three or four page answers to each of the questions we get most often around sexuality. And then Surprised by the Healer, this one talks nine stories of women who had sexual brokenness and their journey of healing. Uh, A lot of what Julie's talking about, about being those examples and role models. So um, we as a ministry are excited to be talking about this and helping equip the church. If you all have a group who you're saying, man, they need to hear this. Like if my church, if my missions organization, if my school could really grasp sexual discipleship, how would that change our community and our, our model and our light for Christ? I'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, we are here to help you. We are here to help leaders really address and understand this topic. So if you have questions on that, Julie and I would love to hang out and talk with you at all um, or connect you with any of our resources. So thanks, friends. All right, thanks. Let me close with some prayer. Thanks, Hannah. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness to each of us. And um, I just, I pray that each man and woman would take away from this time exactly what you wanted them to hear. Uh, And make us bold. Make us merciful. Make us courageous. Make us like you, Jesus, because, uh, because we need you and our world needs you. 
In your name we pray, amen.